Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really excited today, Lena. Tell us who's with us. Today we are going on to my side of the pond, as in World War II history. Yay! <laughs> um, we are joined today with Peter Lyon, uh, who is a seven-time Emmy Award-winning producer, director and writer. But today we're talking about his latest book, Merg which is about a second World War II soldier, but I'm not going to give it all away because I'm going to let Peter tell you more about him. So welcome, Peter. Thank you. So, so happy to be with you guys. Thank you Oh, we're so thrilled to see that you're fit and well. Whereabouts are you and how is lockdown? Oh, well, I'm in the, uh, in the east coast of, uh, of the U.S. And uh, right now it's, it's pouring rain and windy. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it makes isolation even more uh, dramatic, let's say. So. It suddenly turned into a Bronte <laughs> novel. <laughs> it's not like you can walk, right, you can't exactly walk out and just, oh, let's just go walk around the neighborhood. No, it's, it's not going to happen today. So, uh, but we're coping, we're, we're surviving. And, uh, and I think that's what, it's, it's important that we all do that. Let's face it, stay home, stay safe, right? Absolutely. Exactly. So we're here to talk about your book. And I would like to know a little bit of background knowledge. So could you tell us a little bit more about George Mergenthaler and what his life was like before America entered the war? Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, it's his, his, George was, um, let me just put it this way. When I first came across the story of, of George Mergenthaler, I was, you know, I was deeply moved by it. And, and I went about uh, trying to write, I, I knew I was going to write this story. I knew I wanted to write this book. And so I set about doing it. And at the time, and this was many, many years ago, the, the information that I had at my disposal, I, I didn't have enough to really formulate the whole story. And I was running into roadblocks. So I thought, hmm, what can I do to, to really make this work? So I decided, oh, I know. I'll just take the factual story and I will wrap it with like the fictitious uh, you know, story around it. And then that's how I'll do it. And, and that's how I proceeded to, to write Merg. Um, and I got about three quarters of the way through the book and I realized that it was all crap. And I was like, I was just awful. And I just thought, you know what, this deserves to be the true story that it is. And let me tell it the way it is. And that's what kind of got me into his background. Cause I, I, at the time I knew that he was born in 1920 and he was an only son, only child. And at that time was the sole male heir to the vast Mergenthaler fortune. And I knew that, but I, but I, Beyond that, it was, you know, again, I didn't know a whole lot more. 
So I decided that, well, how about if we look back at his family and see how he became the only male living heir to this, to this vast family fortune. And that's when the story really opened up because if you look at his family background, it's just fascinating. The, the, as I like to say, it is a family, the Mergenthalers were a family, you know, blessed with prosperity and cursed by tragedy. And we see that play out again and again with the Mergenthaler family. Um, his grandfather, Ottmar Mergenthaler, emigrated to the U.S. from Germany in the uh, middle uh, 1800s. Um, with, as the story goes, $30 and a gold watch, and that was it. But he was a, an absolute genius when it came to um, mechanics, like machines. Um, and he had this sort of almost idiot savant type way of looking at a, at a blueprint or a piece of machinery. And he could look at it as not so much a, 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 a collection of parts, but as the machine as a whole. And he could tell you right then and there why it worked, why it didn't work, how to make it better, why it would never be made better. And so uh, with that knowledge, he became an, uh, excellent at drafting. And it was through that in his half-cousin's machine shop in Baltimore, Maryland, which was the, where the, uh, the, the, the height of the Industrial Revolution and patents, patents became uh, necessary. And that was where the, the patent office was. So everybody was going to Baltimore to get their, their drafts of their machines done. And they went to Otmar. And one of the, one of the people was um, a guy who basically was trying to design some sort of machine for printing, uh, newspaper printing, because if you think about it, there had not been an advance in the printing industry since the Gutenberg press. So they were talking like 400 years of the same sort of handset type and, and newspapers, which were the, the major communication vehicle at the time, were struggling for ways to get information out there. And Otmar, through his genius, invents the linotype machine. And that revolutionized the, the printing industry and made the Mergenthaler family wealthy beyond anyone's imagination and famous as well. But again, through the course of uh, many years, we see the Mergenthaler family just get hit with tragedy after tragedy. And then in 1920, George is born, and he is the, the family's sort of last best hope for to carry on the family legacy and the Mergenthaler legacy. And, you know, his, his, he grew up in, in, a, in a place called Rye, New York, which is a, a suburb of New York, very uh, bucolic uh, town. Just, I mean, just absolutely ideal where you'd want to raise a family. Um, he, although his family was like ridiculously wealthy, George was not spoiled. He was not, he was not uh, coddled. He was, you know, he was just, he grew up as any other normal kid. Uh, he did, however, have the best education uh, that money could buy. He went to the to the Rye Country Day School, which is a private school in in, in Rye, and then he went to the uh, Canterbury Middle School, which was in uh, in Connecticut, and that was also a private school. So he had the, a, a great education, and he eventually uh, was accepted into Princeton University, and he was enthralled with languages and history, and so that's basically how he grew up was, was learning about, and, and, the, and the history part of his education was because he knew he came from Germany and uh, because of World War I was very fascinated by the whole uh, European experience during that time. And so he became just a, an absolute uh, student of history and having grown up in this, in this basically German household, spook, <laughs> spook, spoke fluent French and German. And so he was, uh, it was, he was an incredibly brilliant guy, um, uh, very charismatic, very funny, and generous to a fault. Um, he 
just shared everything he had with his classmates, with his roommates. That's just the kind of guy he is. There wasn't anyone that didn't like George Mergenthaler. And, the, and to top it all off, he was a very gifted athlete. In fact, he uh, excelled in squash and tennis. And uh, the legend goes that at the, at the Westchester Country Club in, in Rye, New York, where his father was one of the principal investors in that club, uh, George was often found at summers on the grass tennis courts playing the club, uh, you know, the, the, the best that the club had because he was just so gifted and people just wanted to play him just for the experience of playing this like lanky kid. Um, and so he was, again, a very, very gifted athlete and just an overall nice guy and, and, and actually was uh, very tall. He was almost six feet tall um, uh, by the time he was done growing. And that's, that's sort of the, the, the background of George Mergenthaler. Are you going to tell me he was really good looking as well? Movie star good looks. Oh, um, he's got it all. I left, I left, I left that part out, <laughs> Yeah. Um, which was, and it's true. He was, uh, he had movie idol looks. I mean, the, the guy was, he literally was the guy that had it all. And, you know, it, and you would think somebody like that, you know, could, could easily grow up being pretentious or, or aloof. And it, that just was not George's style. And, um, and as we know, when, you know, when war came to, to, in, in 1941, um, George, I mean, he just, he just wanted to do his part. So he just enlisted on his own, you know, against his father's best wishes because he just wanted to do his part because he was just such a down-to-earth guy. Yeah, so you he's... see why I like him, Alex. This guy is I just... But, but it's going to get... It's going to get better, but it's also going to get worse. This guy is, <laughs> I, lo- I think he's such an absolute diamond, this guy. Uh, you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on. And, you know, and it, we see that play out throughout the story just, I mean, just the little incidents that, you know, are documented of, of the things that he does. We'll touch on some of those later, but it's, it's just hard not to come away saying, gosh, you know, what, what a wonderful guy. And he literally is just one of the, one of the, the absolute nice guys. And the fact that he was easy on the eyes probably didn't hurt either. So there you go. So he's 21 and war breaks out. Tell us, um, so he decides he has to do his bit and he's going to go and enlist. Uh, what unit did he join? And can you tell us a, bit, a little bit about his training in America? Sure. Actually, he was in school. He was in Princeton at the time when uh, the Japanese ended up bombing Pearl Harbor. Now, at, at this time, it, you know, the war in, in Europe was, was ongoing. I mean, you know, pretty much except for, for Great Britain, you know, Europe was under the, the Nazi uh, uh, the rule. And, and everybody in the U.S. was looking at this and watching this. And there was at the time, it's important to remember, there was this isolationist mentality uh, in the United States that they didn't want to get involved with anything. But then uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and at that point, you know, it was we. There was no, you know, the, the U.S. was entering the war, and George, uh, like so many of his generation, wanted to do his part. So uh, he enlisted almost immediately, and on, but because he was in Princeton University, his enlistment was deferred until January of 1943, where he graduated from Princeton on an accelerated program. Um, just because they wanted to get college graduates uh, into the into the military as quickly as possible, so he graduates in this um, in this uh, accelerated program, and just days after his, his graduation, is sent to Camp Hood in Texas. It's now known as Fort Hood, but at the time it was just Camp Hood in Texas, and uh, he volunteered for a tank destroyer division, which is this newly formed division, and the uh, United States, having seen the way the the Germans had swept across Europe. Their Panzer uh, armored divisions were, were just unstoppable. 
the U.S. military saw this and were trying to, in anticipation of having to enter the battle, uh, a formed tank destroyer division. George wanted to join one of those, but as I mentioned, he was he was you know six feet tall and fitting into one of those uh, uh, tank destroyers was just not going to happen. So he um, was eventually assigned to a reconnaissance troop, and the reason was because they found out through in basic training that he spoke fluent German and French, and in you know, in the European theater, that's, that's pretty golden. So they said, no, no, you're not going to be a, in tank de destroyer division. You're going to be in a uh, reconnaissance troop. And he was assigned to the uh, 28th uh, reconnaissance troop mechanized because they no longer were on horseback now. Um, and they were attached the, the, this reconnaissance troop to the 28th infantry division. So a little confusing there with the 28th, but that's, that's the way it was. And so they trained with this division in, in, in uh, Camp Hood, also in Virginia, and actually shipped out with this division from Boston, Massachusetts in October of, uh, of 1943. So now we've enlisted, we have trained. So the next logical option is we head to Britain. Correct. And what was his life like there? Well, it, and it, it's interesting because what they, this, this division, the 28th Infantry Division, um, which is where he's attached to with this reconnaissance troop, they end up uh, in Wales. And um, of note here is that the 28th Infantry Division was actually the Pennsylvania National Guard. And that was made up of, of, of soldiers from Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, which are all what? They're all mining uh states where mining is, is, is huge, coal mining, steel mining. And when they went to Wales, which of course were mining was a key industry, it's important to remember a lot of the, 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 the men of the, of the 20th Infantry Division actually had ancestors from Wales. So this, some of these guys actually, when they were there for training, found their old family and some of them, you know, reconnected. Um, and so based on that, the Welsh really embraced the 20th Infantry Division more than any other group of soldiers that went through uh, basic, uh, extended training uh, in, in Wales at the time. And so for, the, for the, the men of the recon troop, which is where George was assigned, they were basically in St. Clair's and um, they were, their headquarters was in the Pennycode Mansion, which is this huge mansion there. In fact, in the book, there's a photo of the entire troop that was taken at the mansion. Um, and, and life in, in, in Wales was interesting because the Welsh, again, they embraced these, these soldiers. So, for instance, um, every Sunday they would, you know, sometimes the soldiers would be invited to the to people's homes for Sunday dinner. But the, the, the deal was, you know, we'd love to have you come to dinner, but you have to bring the dinner. So just like deals were made like, okay, I'll trade you, you know, something for a five pound, you know, tin of, of spam. And so the soldiers <laughs> would bring these five pound tins of spam to someone's house. And that was the deal. They would bring the, the, the main course, so to speak, and, and everybody else would provide the potatoes or whatever. And, and this was like the Sunday ritual. You know, Fridays was fish and chips night. Saturdays was dancing. And Sunday was, was you know, dinners with the family. So, and again, it's important to remember, you know, they were embraced by the, 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 the local population. With the exception of when it came to like dance nights, a lot of the local lads weren't too pleased to see these these young GIs and these in these pretty uniforms with wads of cash to spend. So they were kind of getting pushed out of the scene a little bit, but really it wasn't all that bad. And, and again, the, the the soldiers kind of um, they were there for probably nine months, so they really got to know 
you know, the Welsh people and just everybody uh, in, in these towns, they, they all sort of bonded. And don't forget also when they went on like their three day leave or whatever, they all went to London. So it was, you know, they were, they were very much, you know, into, into the, the whole atmosphere at the time. And, and I think it was then that when they were going to London for these holidays, that the war really started to, to cement with them because you, they could see the, you know, the, the bombing and the destruction from the Blitz and it really started to hit home. Like, you know, this is, you know, this is going to be, you know, we're going to be in the middle of this soon. They didn't know when, but they knew that, you know, the invasion of Europe was, was imminent and that's what they were training for. And, um, it, you know, they knew it was coming. They just weren't sure as you know when it was going to come and at what wave they would be included in. But their training was very difficult. They they hiked the the, the hills of, of Wales, and uh, that was that was the worst of it because they uh, <laughs> some some of those 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 hikes were were, were torturous, and many a, many a blister was popped afterwards. Wow! Um, so D Day does happen on June the sixth, um, and at the end of July, George joins the um, battle for Normandy, doesn't he? Right. The 28th is then committed in, in mid-July. They end up in the Bocage region of France. And it's, you know, this is hedgerow country. And it's just, it's just brutal because although they had all the aerial reconnaissance of, 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 the, of the area at the time, they were not prepared for the, for the density and the, just the difficult nature of getting through these hedgerows. So they, it was, it was um, basically all the training they'd gone through, I don't say it was out the window, but they had to sort of rethink how they how they fought through this area and the recon troop you have to remember they were always out in front that was their mission their mission wasn't necessarily to engage the enemy it was to find the enemy find where they were and then radio back or you know messenger back to headquarters okay here's the location here's where here's where they are here's where the strength is and what we think and then the the command would then you know uh, reconfigure their battle plans based on the intel that was coming back from the reconnaissance troops. And the Germans got very wise to this during uh, the hedgerow fighting because they would sometimes let the recon troop just pass by, uh, you know, sort of unmolested, just for a chance to get at the the main corps, the main infantry corps as they advanced up. So again, it was a whole uh, series of having to to rethink how they how they ended up fighting through the hedgerow country. Um, and George with the rest of the guys and. Interesting, I was talking to some of the veterans of that recon troop, and they would say, like, you know, to find the enemy, the best way to find him was to just keep going until someone started shooting at you. And that was it. I mean, as, 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 despite all their training and, all, and, and everything they went through, that really is what it came down to, is you just kept going until they started firing back at you. Then you would stop, you would pull back, and you'd radio, and you'd radio for help. But even though they were not, uh, you know, the the – meant to engage the enemy fighting with the enemy of course was was only expected and uh and so they did have to see action throughout france throughout belgium and uh and you know they they took some losses but um with george it was interesting because wherever they went no matter what town they went in because he could speak you know french and german he was always able to glean information from prisoners from local townspeople um, probably better than most, and so the that particular recon troop, and and hence the, the some of the divisions that they were that they were um, ahead of, or uh, you know the regiments that they were ahead of, were able to um, on get on field uh, intel and adjust their 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 you know their missions uh, right on the spot, which I think was actually helped them uh, throughout th- their entire campaign because George's information coming back 
was already trained. Like he would interrogate prisoners before they were sent back to, to army intelligence for further, uh, for further um, interrogation. So they were able to get like, you know, field uh, Intel that would help them in their, in their, uh, you know, basically for prevent them from getting killed. So we're now talking about the liberation of France. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about where George was and what he actually did? So in mid-August, the 28th Infantry Division, you know, they, they are the ones that marched down the Champs-Élysées. We've all seen that iconic video or, or photos of that. And, um, and actually, because of the recon troop that George was in, they were assigned to go out ahead of the, the, the main body of the 28th Infantry Division a few days earlier to you know, basically scout the parade route, but also to make sure that there was no uh, German presence still in Paris. You have to remember, they were, the Germans were still retreating at that time. And also they were assigned to make contact with the French freedom forces that were there, uh, all of which George did, again, because George could speak French and German. And, and there's an interesting uh, story, which is true, that um, he, there was a pocket of, of German soldiers from the quartermaster's unit that were uh, basically pinned down by the French resistance fighters and the German soldiers were afraid to come out. They wanted to surrender, but they didn't want to uh, surrender to the French forces because they were afraid of reprisals. So they only would surrender to the, to the U.S. Uh, uh, Army and they basically, George volunteered to go in and make contact with the German soldiers um, and walk them out past the French fighters uh, to, to, the, to the, the, the U.S. Army. That was the only way that they could get the surrender of this quartermaster's thing. So George was, was, was the volunteer for that, sort of like the, uh, the, um, the hostage that they take kind of thing. And, and, he, um, and they knew that it wasn't a trick because who else but a U.S. soldier would, would offer them lucky strikes and Hershey bars. <laughs> so that's yeah. one of the uni- <laughs> unique things. But uh, I'm getting a little off track. It's just one of those little side stories. But they... Um, the, the recon troop, they go in ahead of time to, to basically, again, scout the route and make sure it's, it's cleared and all that kind of stuff. And they set up, uh, they did by the Bois de Boulogne, which is, which is this you know, park forest area in Paris. And an interesting side note there is that um, George is there with his best buddy, Cletus, Cletus Lafond, who is also in the, in the recon troop. And they're right outside the Bois de Boulogne and they're, they're cleaning up because, you know, this is mid-August, it's hot, it's dusty, they, you know, they've not showered in days. And so they're kind of cleaning up at this fountain and everything and, and filling their canteens. And they see these two girls uh, walking by and, and, and George um, sort of elbows Cletus, who's a bit shy and, and kind of like, hey, well, you know, why, don't you go, why don't you go say hello to those French girls with your, 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 your Jeep taught French? Because it was always uh, uh, George who would teach the other soldiers how to speak French. Um, and so, uh, Cletus goes up to one of the girls and introduces himself and everything. And, it, and this girl's name is Anne. And, uh, you know, they started a conversation and, um, it turns out that Anne, uh, just happened to live across the street from, uh, one of the most notorious serial killers in the world <laughs> ever. This guy uh, named Dr. Marcel Partois, and he was known as the butcher of Paris. And, and it always struck me that of all the, the, the girls this guy Cletus could have met while in Paris during a war, he meets this girl who happens to live across the street from the, Paris's most notorious serial killer. It was, it's just, it's, 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 it's an incredible little just side story that is in the book and goes into great detail about that. Um, and, and it was all because George kind of like said, Hey, why don't you go talk to those girls? But that's, but that's the whole, um, reason why they were in Paris before anybody else 
um, ahead of the of that 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 famous march down the Champs Elysees through the Arc de Triomphe. So yeah, and tell it, us about the Versailles parade and and what happened to George the following morning. Well, that's the, that's the thing is like they they literally the whole division and and this is actually a bit of military strategy was that. Now Eisenhower, General Eisenhower knew that they would have to, they, the 20th Infantry Division, would have to, you know, basically in order to keep chasing the Germans out of France, we could either go around Paris or through Paris. And so he said, okay, um, we'll, just, we'll just give the uh, help de Gaulle, because again, at the time there was all this, this you know, there were different factions as the Germans were retreating, like uh, vying for control of France and Paris. And so to help de Gaulle cement his, his hold and his control, uh, Eisenhower said, okay, we'll, we'll uh, do a victory parade down the Champs-Élysées uh, in support of de Gaulle's army, but also really to just move his division through Paris in, in the most uh, efficient way possible. So that's what he did. And he marched his entire division uh, down the Champs-Élysées, right through Paris. And literally they left... Um, they left the streets of Paris and went right back into battle the very next day. And that's exactly what happened to the entire division. And again, with George out in front with the recon troop, that's what, that's what they were doing. And they, they end up fighting their way through France uh, and chasing the Germans out. And, you know, there were, there's, there's countless episodes of, of, you know, again, the troop going into these, these towns and, and finding the Germans gone because the Germans you know, didn't want to stay and fight. And it, one of the one of the interesting side notes was they were they were going down this one particular road, and they were well out of range of the of the the Germans who were who were there to hold the road to make sure that the the Allied troops didn't advance any further. When the Germans opened fire, and and it was just again from all the, the battlefield knowledge they've accumulated, they just couldn't understand why the Germans would give away their position so early. It didn't make any sense until they realized they did it because they just, the Germans wanted to surrender. <laughs> so they yeah. wanted the, the recon troop to know where they were to say like, Hey guys, we're here. And so that's exactly what happened. And they, the recon troop pulls up and the Germans, you know, they put up their little token defense just to say that they did their part, but they wanted to surrender to, to the recon troop. And so they did. So again, they take, they take prisoners and George is the attorney. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So he fights in France, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Can you briefly Correct. tell us a little bit about the battle in Hutgen? 
Yeah, the Hurricane Forest is one of those uh, just absolutely horrific battles. And it, 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 I, I like to say it didn't get a lot of the press that it should have because of the Battle of the Bulge, which took place, you know, a month later. But the Hurricane Forest was this absolutely devastating battle. It was truly an, an American army battle because they were the only ones committed to it at the time. And the fear was that the Germans were going to um, use the Hurricane Forest, which is this like about, about a 50 square mile patch of land between Belgium and Germany. And the fear was that the Germans would, would hold this land, use it as a, as a staging ground to amass uh, you know, a counteroffensive. But also the, the thought was that they would blow the, the dams that, um, that were there along the, the, the river valley, flooding the river valley, and then preventing the American troops from, from using armored vehicles to enter into Germany. That was the, the fear and the whole reason for this battle. And the battle, you could not have picked worse conditions to hold a battle. The, the uh, American troops were fighting uphill, often through... Um, nests of barbed wire and, you know, through, uh, there were machine gun nests everywhere. The entire forest had been pre-sighted, so artillery and mortar shells were falling all over the place. Um, it was just at some, the, the, because the roads were so thick with mud, it really, you couldn't get any vehicles in. So it really was an infantry uh, men's battle. All the roads were mined and they were done so in a, in a, in a, in a pattern not for so much vehicles, but for foot traffic. So every you know eight or nine paces, there was a mine. Uh, this, this, these were the most deplorable uh, fighting conditions you could possibly imagine. And it was wave after wave of division committed to this battle. And in, in November, the beginning of November, the 28th uh, Infantry Division was committed to this battle. And they spent two weeks in the Hurricane Forest. There are, I, I could, to give you an idea of the, how awful this was, a division of guys is about 9,000 guys in a division. Two-thirds of this division were casualties of this one battle. They were just devastated by this after two weeks of fighting. And they were rotated out of the battle. And, and for the, the recon troop, they were, their mission was to watch uh, over uh, one of these particular dams that they thought the Germans were going to blow. Uh, their, their job was to, uh, to basically overlook this one dam because they were afraid that the Germans were going to blow the dam. So they were, they were there to make sure that they would report back any, any kind of troop movement there. But they were also there to direct artillery fire. And they were so much on the front line that at, at times they didn't know whether it was German shells or American shells that were coming down. And it was, it was constant, constant artillery fire. And even so, their only casualties that they uh, incurred were actually the night before they pulled out of the Hurricane Forest where they, they suffered a few casualties because of uh, a mine that one of the uh, replacement vehicles ran over as they were coming into uh, to relieve the, the recon troop. And because of this, this battle, and after two weeks of this, the, the 28th Infantry Division was sent to the rear for R&R, and they were sent westward into Luxembourg, which at this time was known as the quiet zone and the safe zone. And the recon troop, they end up uh, being uh, assigned to this small little farming town called Eschweiler in Luxembourg. So after the battle in Hurkin, because obviously that was it's an it's a battle that we don't talk enough about. Correct. But uh, George was sent with his unit to Eschweiler, uh, a little town. Can you tell us a bit more about his experience in this small town? Well, this is the, and this is a very very small map dot town. I mean, literally, <laughs> you can drive in one end and out the other, and you would have never even known you'd been through the town. 
uh, except for there's this one sharp elbow in the middle of the town that the road you know takes, and that's that's really it. So it's a very small town, and they're assigned to this to this town, and the recon troop is about sixty guys, and again because George can speak German and French, he more than anybody else in the troop was was embraced by the by the villagers now. After nearly five years of Nazi occupation, the people of Luxembourg were so overjoyed to see the American troops come in and, and they were welcomed you know, as, as, with open arms. They shared meals, they shared their homes, they, you know, they, anything that they could with these American soldiers who they you know, um, embraced as liberators. So the, the recon troop, they, they arrive into Eschweiler in mid-November, in mid, uh, November 16th, they end up going into Eschweiler. And George, because again, he, he can speak to uh, everybody in town, he's the one that basically is, is assigning uh, where everybody is going and every, what, what, where people are going to be billeted. And it was the, the um, so it was the local priest that comes up to George and says, you know, I've got a, uh, a room in the parsonage. You are welcome to stay there. And, and George thinks about it and says, okay, I'll take you up on it if there's room for two of us, because he of course wanted to include his best friend Cletus. So he and Cletus uh, end up as, in the parsonage, that's where they're staying, while the rest of the troop is, um, the headquarters um, unit specifically is divided between two um, houses near to the center of town, near to the church, just steps away. And it's interesting about the, these two houses that there's the, the Huberty house and there's the Plachette house. And George and Cletus were supposed to be in the Plachette house, except they took this room at the Parsonage, which was great because it allowed the other guys a little bit more room. Um, the, the guys in the Plachette house were, 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 they started making fun of George and Cletus right away. Like, ah, oh, you know, you guys are big timers and, you know, look at you special privileges and all this kind of stuff until they walked into the Plachette house and they found in this house were four girls between the ages of 18 and I think 26 that were part of the Plachette family. And, you know, for GIs, this is like, this was like heaven. And so there were, to, to say there was a lot of foot traffic in and out of the Plachette house was, puts it mildly just because they all wanted to like, just even be able to talk to these girls that they had, you know, they hadn't seen, you know, any, any, any girls in ages. So this was like interesting. And in the Huberty house, there were three other daughters, um, you know, between the ages of, I, th I think it was like 28 and 34. So it was just uh, interesting. And it got to the point where George actually had to write crib notes for the townspeople to say like, you know, okay, well, you know, we'll trade you uh, eggs for beer or, you know, do you have any smokes or things like that? One of the phrases that he put down was, no, I will not go out with you. Because, <laughs> because these girls are being hit on by these GIs all the time. So that was one of the, the phrases that he had to put down. So again, it was just a little bit of, of, of levity at, the, at, at a very uh, 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 you know, middle of a war kind of thing. But that's, again, it was like the people in town, because George could communicate so easily with them, just embraced him as one of their own. Mm. And he would help the priest out with, uh, George is very religious and helped the priest out with, with uh, mass duties uh, every, you know, on a daily basis, actually. Um, and, and actually the priest, same as Father Bodson, and George sort of became, were almost like long lost brothers. I mean, they weren't brothers, but they, they, they sort of had that sort of relationship and that they, they both loved, loved classical music. They both loved playing chess and reading and talking about you know, current events. And it was just, they, they just had this bond between the two of them that was, again, it was George was an only child. So in a way, Father Botson, uh, being a little bit older though, was almost like an older brother to him. And, and, and being, you know, again, like a brother as well. So they became very, very close. And, uh, and it was a relationship that, that you know, well, we, we see con that continued um, even after the war in, in a way, so. Um, but that was kind of the, what, what they did for the, for the four weeks that they were in town 
just you know being part of of the town, being part of these people. They helped them out with chores. They you know they 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 were living with them. They were sharing meals with them, and it was a, it was actually a very wonderful time for both the townspeople and the GIs and, and who were who were just there to to again rest and recuperate from this this absolutely horrific battle they'd just been in. But then what happens in mid-December? It changes, doesn't it? Everything changes. The, you know, the, the Battle of the Bulge erupts. The, the Germans mount this counteroffensive. And, you know, here they are in the, this Luxembourg, the quiet sector. And who's protecting this, this line, this, basically this 80-mile front? But it's the 28th Infantry Division that's been just absolutely decimated and ripped up. And they're, they're, you know, the new recruits are coming in, the, the replacement soldiers are coming in, and the lines are spread so thin that the Germans just pour right through. And so basically, Luxembourg and Eschweiler, they are, you know, you know, right in the in the in the path of the of the German assault. And December 16th, they get word that the, the Germans are attacking, and at this time there's such confusion, nobody knows what's going on. Um, the the recon troop is ordered to hold. Eschweiler as long as they possibly can. Uh, the words were at all costs. And they did for the next two days until they were, they were just about surrounded. Um, and they were forced to take, at that point, the only road out of town that they could. And they hastily uh, assembled this convoy of vehicles, and like a six-vehicle convoy, and, they, and they, they head out of town. And, and they can see the Germans come, you know, basically coming through the woods. They see the, the gray uniforms and like, you know, through the woods, through the uh, snow that's now beginning to fall. Um, and they get about a mile outside of town. They get into this, this sort of stand of trees, which they think is going to offer them some cover. And it turns out that as they turn into the stand of trees, they basically drive right into the, the German advance in that section. And um, the, the, the convoy is stalled and the Germans open fire. And basically everybody in the convoy just you know, tumbles out of their vehicles you know, try, to try to take cover. And in doing so, a lot of them didn't even have their weapons. They, they, it happened so quickly. Uh, the front, the lead vehicle was disabled. The rear vehicle was dis disabled. So the, 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 the recon troop is basically pinned down. And, and, and as they're, they're there, to one side coming up the ravine are these, these advancing Germans, you know, you know, firing at them. And to the, to the other side is an uphill open field run to cover, which would have opened, you know, which made them um, visible and, and, and easy targets. So they were pinned down. Really, death or capture are the only option. Um, and, and so George sees this and he, and he sees what's happening and he, and he knows what's, you know, what, what, what awaits. And he decides he has to do something because he, that's just who he is. So he jumps up onto the command Jeep where there was a 50 caliber machine gun mounted and he cycles the action and he just starts opening fire to dry, to try to, you know, lay enough suppressing fire down to allow the rest of the recon troop to escape. And, 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 and a lot of the soldiers saw their chance and started running. And they, you know, even, even as bullets were flying over their heads, they ran for cover and they, you know, they knew this was an opportunity for them to run. And just about 20 seconds later, the machine gun jams. And, you know, here's George. He's trying to clear the breach, try to get the jam out of there. And now the Germans are returning fire. And he's, you know, and, and I even say in the book, he's standing monument tall in his Jeep trying to clear the action while bullets are flying all around. Nobody in the recon troop except for a couple soldiers had their weapons. So they did what they could to return fire to buy George more time which they ended up doing. He clears a breach and recycles the action and starts firing again. And he yells at the other guys that were remaining, you know, go make, make a run for it. And they do. And so he's like the only guy left 
you know, pumping this machine gun fire at the attacking Germans. And eventually one of the German soldiers crawls up close enough with a, with a, what they called a burp gun, opens fire and, and George is cut down. And he, you know, he's struck by a volley of bullets and, and tumbles out of the Jeep. Um, and it's, it was that heroic act that allowed, and I say that, and I say heroic act, I don't say that lightly. I think sometimes, you know, t today we, we tend to throw the, the word hero around a little too, too liberally. Um, and his act was definitely heroic. He allowed the rest of that recon troop to escape. And of the, of the guys that left that day, the 60-man 60, the 60 troop that left that day, all but two survived not only that fight, but the war. Most were taken prisoner and became uh, POWs. But, but I think there was about 20 or 25 of them that actually made it back to the, to, uh, the Allied lines uh, during the bulge. And miraculously, they all survived the war. So I just, I always uh, go forward and say, like, there are families in existence today that, that, uh, that literally owe their existence to George Mergenthaler and what he did that one afternoon. And so it's, it's, a, it's just, I think it's a very poignant and heroic moment that I think just got overlooked. He is so, I, I am so in love with this guy. He just is absolutely amazing. I mean, the story does continue though, doesn't it? I mean, he, he survives, but it just does not end well for him, does it? And no, it does not end well. He did, you know, he did survive. And, you know, he was shot, uh, he was shot once through the neck and then once in the upper body. And, and he's, he's along with two other recon troop soldiers um, taken to the side. They were there to help him. Uh, one was a was a was a not really a medic, but somebody who had medical training, but he had no 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 supplies, and they were off to the side, taken prisoner, and a an officer comes up and starts questioning them, and of course at the time everybody the Germans wanted to know what kind of troop movements were you know how many were here and everything like that, um, and George again spoke German, and replied to the to the officer in German, to this day we don't know what George said. But with his reply, the German officer drew his pistol and shot George in the forehead and basically executed him. Um, and that is not the, the popular story that is known. And it was only through just an incredible amount of research, I'm just going to toot my own horn here for a second, that um, that element of the story became known. Um, I had heard that element of how he actually died from one of the recon troop soldiers, the, one of the veterans who I spoke with, um, told me the story that he had gotten that from a former POW. Uh, we assumed that was the person who was with George at the time, but I couldn't get any other verification on that. It was only that one, that one account, and yet every other account said he, was, he died you know, uh, at the Jeep. Until I had gone back to Luxembourg for final interviews before the book came out, and unsolicited by me was a, 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 a guy whose father was there during that time. And in their barn is where these, some of the soldiers were taken and held prisoner. And he had heard the story of George being uh, executed like this. And they told me this and I was, I was just gobsmacked because yes, this is, this is, this is now verified. So that is, that is actually what happens despite what's, what's been uh, printed or, or, or told before. And interestingly, they bury him, this very shallow grave, right where he was, basically right where he was shot. Um, and then the snows from the Battle of the Bulge and that winter come, and it's the worst 
winter they had like 40 years and, and it happens at this time. And so George's gravesite is buried and nobody the soldiers and the recon troop that, that made it back to uh, Nerf Chateau in, in Belgium, they, they didn't know what happened. Nobody knew what happened to George um, until the snows melted in March. Um, and when the snows melted, they, uh, they eventually found his grave. And Father Botson goes there and confirms that it is George. And how, they, how he uh, confirms that is, is detailed in the book, but they ended up um, taking him, putting him in the coffin. They have a procession through town. And they buried George in the town cemetery in a place of prominence overlooking these fields that he had spent so much time. And it, and it was Father Bodson who then wrote to the Mergenthaler family because George had given him you know, the, his mom and dad's address to tell him what, what a great son they had and what George meant to everybody in the town and, and how you know, they, they care for him uh, in, the, in his burial as they would one of their own. And the Mergenthaler family was so moved because they, they did not know what happened to George until, again, his body was found. They were so moved by the, the embrace that this town had for their only son that they wanted to do something to thank the town. So uh, after the war, they uh, commissioned some Belgian architects to come and rebuild the church that had been destroyed uh, or partially destroyed during the fighting of the bulge. And so the Mergenthalers funded the rebuilding of the church and they rebuilt this, um, you know, based on the architectural plans, basically just as it had been prior to the war, brick by brick, um, including the hand painted mural behind the altar that depicts Jesus feeding the masses with the help of an apostle, an apostle who's dressed in, an army uniform and bearing the likeness of George Mergenthaler. And I have to tell you, I have been in this church so many times and every time I go in there, it just takes your breath away when you see it and you know the story behind it. It's just, you're just awestruck in it. And, it, and again, it's just breathtaking. And he is the only GI to have a um, church dedicated to him, isn't he? Absolutely correct. The only church in the world is this church, the Church of St. Saint, uh, Mauritius. Uh, that's dedicated to the memory of a, of a single American soldier. And it's, and it's in this small little town of, of Eschweiler. And, and again, this town is very small and the church is, is very austere uh, from the outside. It's, you know, it's basic stark white walls, of, you know, black slate roof, black heavy oak doors. But then you walk inside and the colors, and you'll see this in the book, uh, are magnificent colors of this church. And you just see the, the stained glass windows. And, and it's just, it, again, it's just breathtaking. Um, and, and again, there, there's photos of it in the book that help, that help drive that home. And if anybody ever gets a chance to go there, you must absolutely see it. I've got to now you've said that. I, do you know, I have, a, <laughs> I have an Etonian in my book who was executed when lying wounded on the floor as a prisoner as well. And it just, I mean, you're talking about total war and, complete horror but there are still rules and when you come across something like that it just that anger i mean alina's already said if she had not if been reading your book on her phone if she'd been holding a book she would have chucked the book because right. it just makes you rage at the waste of a young life when it's needlessly taken away totally agree it's uh... oh, you know i mean you know george was wounded and you know and he and perhaps gravely so we'll never know and, you know, would he have survived, you know, being in a prison of war camp with these wounds? You know, we, we, we don't know. And again, we don't know what he said to this German. But the fact that, yes, he, you know, the German callously drew, you know, just drew his pistol and killed him. 
as you say, there are certain, you know, rules and things and, and it is, it is infuriating and it is, and this was a, a waste of just such a wonderful person. He was just an absolutely wonderful person and a, a wonderful life. And to just have it cut down like that, it's it just, you know, it just, it's, it makes your heart sink. It really does. What a tribute from the people that grew to love him in such a short space of time as well. I mean, he deserves a film. He deserves to be a Hollywood film. <laughs> I think he, he deserves to have a film. I mean, I, it's, well, I it's, totally agree. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's the, the downside of all of this is, is that it's not very common um, on the Western Front during the Second World War to see acts like this. But going to the opposite side, going into Poland and everything, it, it becomes quite common and normal on for example, in the concentration camp system. So I'm not sure why I got really annoyed. I think it's because it's something that's unusual, unfortunately. I think, no, I think you're right. I mean, you know, you know, you hear about all the horrors of certainly, you know, concentration camps and things like that. And of course, it, it, you know, these are horrific episodes, you know, in, in our history. And then, you know, you, I think, you know, in, in a way, you know, I, I, sometimes the way we relate that generation to this and future generations are through the individual stories such as this one. And, and when you hear something like this and, it's in, and you hear an individual account of what, of what took place, in a way it almost, you know, cements it more. And like, you know, yeah, you, you can hear about all the, you know, the millions of people that were killed in, in concentration camps and these death camps. But then you hear an individual story of, of something that happened in, the, in a camp or something. And it just, I don't know, it just seems to resonate more deeply. And I think certainly with Murr, you get that resonance in this particular soldier. And, and again, in the way he's remembered to this very day. And I think that's, that's what just, you know, it, it, again, takes your breath away in a way. It's been fascinating to to hear about World War II um, for once, not with broad strokes and politics, but through the ideas of one single soldier. So thank you so much for coming on and joining us to tell us the story thank of you. Merg. We are completely in love with him. Thank both you. Of us. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure and an honor to talk to you guys. So thank you very much. Join us later when we will be learning all about the early history of the CIA with Tim Weiner. Until then, don't forget that you can subscribe to History Hack for as little as a dollar a month via our patron system on our website at www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis, which we would dearly love to do, and it is much appreciated. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.